Well, it's come to this. My friend John Syracusa, who has appeared on most of the episodes of this series, has not quibbled up to now with the vague concept that this is a countdown of Macs that I have decided are the most notable of all time. But as we reach the end of the countdown, he's been confronted with a decision I made that he simply can't endorse. I know this is not a best of list. I know this is not your favorites. You, you say notable, but honestly, I keep going back to the title. You, d- you left out an adjective. You just said 20 Macs for 2020, and that's what it is. Anytime we discuss this topic of great Macs of the past or whatever, if the parameters of the discussion come anywhere near something like importance or the most revolutionary or the most personally impactful or any of those things that sort of say, what kind of ripples in the pond did this computer make? What put a dent in the universe? If that's any part of your criteria, it's very difficult to make any argument against the original Macintosh. Everything that came after it started with that one. So, here we are. It's not the best Mac ever. Some jerks might avoid calling it the most notable ever, because that would be really obvious. It might be the most important Mac ever. Mostly because it's the first Mac ever. It's 20 Macs for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. Sorry, John. This is number three, the original Macintosh. If you didn't live through the 70s and 80s, you may not realize this, but personal computers back then were different. Really different. The before times, they're dark. Computers had screens that were black, and then onto those black screens came light-up letters. Whether it was the Apple II, the IBM PC, or the Commodore PET, or the Commodore 64, computers were a black void and light-up letters would come in. And you would type on the keyboard and your letters would appear on the screen. And you could type letters to tell the computer what to do. And very often the computer would reply by sending you back more letters. And the Macintosh was the exact opposite of that. It was like a piece of paper, white. And onto that white landed black letters, black ink on a white background. And from that, everything followed. The computer was made up of pictures. You used a mouse to interact with it. All those pictures were like pencil or ink drawings on a white background. The pixels were the retina pixels of the day. They were very tiny and very sharp compared to their contemporaries. And they were square. So there was none of this weird rectangular pixel stuff that made everything look all janky. It wasn't like a computer trying to draw pictures, trying to be a picture thing. It just was in an elemental way. And this was such a discontinuity from the computers that came before it. The first computer I used was a Commodore PET. It had no graphics at all. It was just glowing text on a black background. The second computer I ever used was an Apple II. It had some games with graphics, but for the most part, everything you did was typing in glowing text on a black background. Here's John Gruber. It's so inspiring that they were willing to break so many of the rules all at once. Just the fact that the screen was white with black text was the complete opposite of every other mainstream computer. Famously, I mean, the whole era was defined by black CRTs with, you know, you get to choose. Do you want green text or orange text or white text? That's it. I got the original Mac when I was nine years old. I just spent all day 
with the mouse in my hand, finding every single thing you can click and what it does and all the different things you could do with the keyboard. It was like a little place I could go and there were no limits. I could just look anywhere, do anything, make anything I wanted. How, how many hours did I spend just on brush mirrors alone in Mac Paint? But just in the finder, arranging files, making folders, making documents, renaming them. It sounds silly now, but coming from a world where it was just a giant empty void and a command prompt blinking at you demanding input, it was so incredibly different. The first time I saw a Mac at the West Coast Computer Fair in 1985, I couldn't believe what I was seeing on the screen. The graphics were colorless compared to the Apple II, but they were shockingly fast-moving and crisp. The screen, the mouse, the very shape of the box. The Mac felt entirely foreign to me. This was a computer? This jump from... Computers that just show letters on a screen and you speak to them by essentially typing things and hitting return to this thing where you do none of that was incredible. Having a computer that was like an old style computer that could run a program that showed pictures versus the Macintosh, which just was a graphical user interface. I think it was actually very important that there was no command line or anything like that. You turned on the computer and that's all there was. This was the statement computer. This was the product that you could buy as a consumer that showed the way computers would work from now on. And also, it was the biggest change from the previous generation to the next that I think we have ever seen and probably will ever see. Choosing a graphical user interface or GUI over the traditional command line interfaces of most computers wasn't just an aesthetic decision. It was all about reaching a new audience and letting them discover and explore without having to read a manual. One of Apple's launch ads for the Mac, played during the 1984 Winter Olympics, showed an IBM PC with an enormous manual next to it, and a Mac with a tiny user's guide. This is a highly sophisticated office computer, and to use it, all you have to do is learn this. This is Macintosh from Apple, also a highly sophisticated office computer, and to use it, all you have to do is learn this. Now, you decide which one is more sophisticated. Because with command line apps, you needed to learn which keys to press to do what you wanted. That means you needed to consult the manual. The computer industry was only just emerging from its origins in a hobbyist culture, which assumed you'd do the work to figure out how to use a computer because it was fun. With a Mac, Apple wanted regular people to get access to the power of the personal computer. That's what the first advertising slogan for the Mac, a computer for the rest of us, meant. If you know how to point, you already know how to use it. Macintosh, the computer for the rest of us. Mac users wanted to use a computer to do stuff. It was a means to an end. And the brilliance of the graphical interface and the fact that it had a menu bar that would let you click through an organized list of every single command made all the difference. It wasn't just that it was a GUI. This sort of underlying fundamental principles that came with the Mac, they really committed to the ideas of user interface consistency and logic. You can say these things, but if you don't implement them in the system, it doesn't matter. So for example, the pitch of, of the Mac was, there are certain interface paradigms that once you learn the paradigm, it's like that in every program. This was a big pitch on the early Mac because computers were quote unquote hard to use back then. So they said, if you learn how to use pull down menus, if you learn selecting a noun and selecting a verb from menu to act on that noun, if you learn things like double click to open, if you learn these paradigms and you learn them in one program, when you get your second program, you aren't starting from zero 
because Apple was very insistent that its user interface guidelines be followed. The idea with the Macintosh right from the get-go was that you were always in the Mac environment. And, okay, you could only run one app at a time. But you did it the exact same way. And if you wanted to copy something from Mac Paint and paste it into Mac Write, you weren't switching modes or going out. Oh, you're in and now you're out and you're back at the prompt and then you do this thing. You're always in Macintosh. You even had like an avatar, like the little arrow pointer was you. If you got another program, you're like, oh, I recognize a lot of these things. They all had the menu bar. It was always at the top of the screen. Pull down menus worked the same way. The first couple menus had the same familiar items. Quit was at the bottom of the file menu. It was always command Q. Save was always command S. And on top of all of that, what the Mac had was a sense of joy and wonder that a lot of these other systems didn't. It had personality. The whimsy and fun of the original Mac is also an important part of the story. It was the first computer operating system that you could say was designed not in the architectural or engineering sense, but in the art direction sense. Designer Susan Kerr created a whole collection of icons scattered throughout the interface, including personifications of the Mac itself in various moods from happy to sad to dead. My personal favorite might have been the weird blockheaded person who appeared, complete with an exclamation point in a cartoon speech bubble when there was a system alert. It was adorable. It had personality from the second you turned it on. There was a little picture of itself smiling back at you. The adorableness and the attractiveness and, and how cute it was attracted me to it immediately. The personality and sense of humor and values of the people who made it came through in the computer in, in every aspect. It helped that a lot of these important programs were written by one or two or three people, and it helped those one or two or three people were brilliant and interesting people, and it helped there was a strong hand guiding the entire project, insisting on certain things being the same despite all these strong personalities. Here's James Thompson. So many things that the Mac did back then live on today. And I was thinking about this. If you put an Apple Silicon Mac in front of somebody from 1984, other than the sort of future shock aspects of it, they'd still be able to use the thing. And I don't think that's because the Mac has stagnated since then. It's just because they got so much right the first time they did it. Or second time, if you count the Lisa, which they did invent a lot of the user interface conventions for. Okay, so because James just mentioned the Lisa, I need to break the seal on one of the facts that complicates the legacy of the original Mac. One January in the early 1980s, Apple introduced a revolutionary new computer that featured a groundbreaking graphical user interface driven by a weird new peripheral called a mouse. It was 1983. And that computer wasn't called Macintosh, it was called Lisa. A key element in the common user interface is the mouse, an ingenious cursor positioning device that makes using the system as easy as point and press. In the design of Lisa, we chose to use graphical menu items instead of word commands that you type in uh, because it's a lot easier to learn. Instead of remembering a whole long list of commands and remembering how to spell each correctly and all of those things, we just present a picture, a menu of options, and to choose one, you just point at it with a mouse, and it's real easy to learn. We never talk about Lisa, because the Mac went on to spawn an industry that continues to this day, and the Lisa, well, didn't. It didn't sell well. It was eventually shoehorned into being a Mac-compatible computer and quickly vanished. 
But Lisa was built by a lot of the same people who went on to build the Mac. And the funny thing is the Lisa was more advanced than the Mac in a lot of ways. It came with a hard drive while the Mac relied only on floppy disks. It had more memory. Its operating system had protected memory, something the Mac wouldn't get until OS X came along. It also cost $10,000, the equivalent to about $26,000 today. Here's Harry McCracken. People are vaguely aware that there was something called the Lisa that was sort of like a Mac, except much more expensive and not successful. And I really think that we tend to underestimate the Lisa because even though it did not succeed, a pretty substantial percentage of the things that got people excited about the Mac existed in the Lisa first. And I mean, who knows, without the Lisa, there might never have been a Mac. And the fact that it was commercially unsuccessful doesn't mean that um, it didn't contribute something really important to the, the Apple story. Apple's work on the Lisa ultimately crossed over and informed the Mac team. When Steve Jobs got kicked off the Lisa team, he famously took over the Mac team, and the rest is history. Nobody really remembers the Lisa now, but it's hard to imagine that the Mac could have succeeded at all if the Lisa hadn't laid the groundwork first. And let's be clear, in 1984, when the Mac was announced, Lisa users weren't impressed. Here's Rick LePage. I have a a slightly different perspective because I I was at the Boston Computer Society meeting where Jobs pulled out the Mac. Tonight, really for the second time ever, we'd like to let uh, Macintosh speak for itself. Hello, I'm Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. And it was interesting, but I was using a Lisa at the time. So, you know, it it, it was very hard to look at the the original Mac and think, hmm. I want one of those. The Lisa and Mac had a mouse in common, but the Lisa, because it was designed as an expensive business system, had a full keyboard. When it came time to design the keyboard of the original Mac, it was decided that it would be compact with no number pad or traditional cursor movement keys. No function keys, no numpad, no arrows, no home end. None of that. No arrow keys in particular stands out because that was an intentional omission to make sure that no one who tried to make Mac software would say, oh, well, we're just going to make it like our PC software, and you'll use function keys and arrow keys to move stuff around. It'll just be whatever we're currently making for DOS or the Apple II. Yeah, that, but on the Mac. And it's like, you're not going to have arrow keys. We want our users to use the mouse all the time. It was a statement. It was a deterrent. Don't even try to bring that crap here. Don't take your DOS program and turn it from green on black to be black on white and say, yay, we made a Mac program. Because you could do that. You could make a window and fill it with a bunch of character displays, but... That's not a Mac program at all. The Mac was a lot cheaper than the Lisa, but it still cost $24.95. That's more than 6000 of today's dollars. For comparison, the Apple IIe, bundled with monitor and disk drive, cost $2,000. So it wasn't cheap. And Apple had made some compromises in order to ship it. Here's Shelley Brisbane. That initial device was expensive, and it was underpowered. And if you wanted to spend your day in Mac Paint or Mac Write, you could do that. But it wasn't the kind of a device where people who were not visionaries or hobbyists or somebody like that was going to invest a lot of money in. I don't think it's till you get to the Mac Plus, or maybe if you're being generous, the Mac 512KE, where you had people actually making pieces of software like PageMaker or putting Word on that device, that people were able to really say, yeah, I think I could use a Mac and do something more than just, you know, enjoy it and listen to it talk to me and use the talking moose and play Dark Castle and all those things that people like to do. 
One of the biggest failings in the original Mac was its very small amount of memory, 128 kilobytes of RAM. Now, a lot of the original Mac system routines were stored in read-only memory, which helped. And the Mac's floppy disk could store 400 kilobytes of data, which meant there was enough room to store system software and some programs and a few files on one disk. But if you needed more disk space than your boot floppy had available, Apple had cleverly designed a system to support more than one disk at a time, even though there was only one disk drive. You'd eject the first disk, but it would stay visible on the desktop, just grayed out. And then you could insert another disk and save your file or launch a program from that other disk. The problem with this approach was that the system would sometimes need to check back to that first disk, and with a small amount of memory, that happened a bit more often, which led to one of the core experiences of the earliest Macs. Your disk would be spat out, and you'd be told to insert the other disk, and this would often happen multiple times as you swapped back and forth. A friend of mine somehow inherited an original Mac in the late 1980s, and I still have these vivid memories of sitting there watching him attempt to use it and the degree to which almost anything he wanted to do devolved into him swapping floppy disks over and over and over again, which was an artifact of the fact that it had so little RAM and no hard disk. And people kind of know that, that the uh, original Mac only had 128K and that was a problem, but unless you actually used it back then, you might underestimate the degree to which it, it really crippled what was otherwise an incredibly uh, ambitious machine full of potential. Later in 1984, Apple released a slightly more expensive Macintosh with 512 kilobytes of memory, which was better. And eventually the Mac Plus came along, boosting the memory to one megabyte and offering a SCSI port, which allowed Mac users to put their system software on an attached hard drive. And that largely ended the floppy disk shuffle. What strikes me most about this whole generation of early Macs is that if you put them in the context of what would come immediately thereafter, they seem almost prehistoric. When the Mac 2 and Mac SE arrived in 1987, Apple had created a standard Mac platform that would be remarkably stable for more than a decade. But the original Mac and its immediate successors were different. Still, it's impossible to deny just how iconic the original Mac is. It's a landmark in the history of computing, and it looks the part. It's been a long time since Apple actually made a computer that looked like that silhouette, but a lot of the time when people want to represent a Macintosh, they still use that silhouette. It's, it's a little bit like the way that a Polaroid photo with, with that border represents photography in a broad way, even though it's also sort of an artifact of the distant past. And then there's what the original Mac represents despite its many technical limitations. It's not just that it was a GUI computer and it was the first one that was kind of popular. It's the specifics of the system. A Mac that is not as good as the Mac may be as important, but wouldn't be as beloved or amazing. This was the first one, and the things that were bad about it were technical details that don't matter, like not having enough memory and not having a hard drive. But the things that were good about it overwhelmed that massively. Now, there's one aspect that I'd put in the column of things that were good about it that I haven't gotten to just yet. And it's one that's still going strong 36 years later. It's the community of people that grew up around the Mac, 
who embraced this quirky and cute little computer and shared their enthusiasm with others. And over the years, more people discovered the Mac, and they discovered that unique community, which has continued to evolve and change through the years. But there's still something special about being a Mac user. The things that I remember about that time were everybody had the carrying case and five people would get together in somebody's basement and all pull out their Macs and like set them up and run them. I can't remember what we were doing, why we were doing that, but it was kind of like, oh, wow, we're all Mac users. Let's do that. It created that idea that everybody who was using a Mac was part of a family. And as silly and as corny as that sounds, however many years later, we're still there. People don't get that way about Windows machines. And that all goes back to the fact that everything was in that box. This interesting, very raw, very young operating system, this strange little box with this tiny little screen, that all together started this thing that you're doing now, right? You're still using these computers to do your job, to do your business. I'm using them to do my business. Those first machines are important for that reason alone. This has been 20 Max for 2020. It was written by me, Jason Snell. My thanks to John Gruber, Shelley Brisbane, James Thompson, Rick LePage, and Harry McCracken, with deepest apologies to John Syracuse. Brian Hamilton provided production help, and I'll be back next week with number two. 